kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Auntie Nanny. Uh, sorry for the slight delay, folks. Skype decided it didn't want to play with everybody who was on tonight. Um, with me tonight is the best producer money can't buy, which is good because I don't pay him. Very. Hi, Very. How are you? I'm fine. Damn Did you, you Microsoft. A- no. <coughs> <laughs> Did you have a nice weekend? Yeah. I went to a little vape meet on Saturday. Which is quite nice. nice. Only only six people, but eh, still counts. Does count. I can't tell you um, when I first started how few people there were vaping. Um, we would go to the, my husband and I would go to these little mini meets with two other people, so yeah. there'd be like four people. So I quite, I quite often have micro meets. That's just me on by myself. Yeah. <laughs> how do Give those myself go? some liquid, you know. Yeah. Get a lot of free juice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Um yeah. So it's it's been a hell of a week. Uh and I think I can say that every week. I still haven't seen the last and final episode of Mr. Robot. So anybody who has, please don't spoil it for me. I'm actually gonna watch it tomorrow after I go to the chiropractor's after work. Because well, I figure I'll be really relaxed. Doctor Who's coming back in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Exciting times. It's good stuff. (laughs) At least, you know, at least there's some stuff coming on that's new. I'm not sure how many really good programs there are um, coming on this season. I doubt there'll be many. There's a good program on the BBC at the minute. I don't know if you'll get it over there. But was it um, Special Forces Ultimate Hell Week? It's one of these ones where they've taken 29 of the allegedly fittest civilians and they're putting them through little 48 hour blocks of some of the special forces training so the first two episodes the first one was navy seals for 48 hours and then they've had um, Yaman which is the Israeli (laughs) counter terrorism lot next week (laughs) it's the one guys from the Philippines and they're shaving the Australian SAS British SAS and Spetnats for last (laughs) <laughs> I, I know, don't know if anyone um, will actually die but they're going to come pretty close <laughs> yeah they are 
Yeah, they are. Um, yeah, special forces training is, uh, yeah. Well, of course, all the people they've got on it are civilians, and they're all gym, <laughs> what, I, I, what I would refer to as gymnasium fit. So oh, they're fit, well. but they've got no body fat. Oh, that's going to go well for the them. Endurance environmental stuff. You need <laughs> body mass index because you, you kind of you, you kind of do need something to burn yeah. through because a lot of that yeah. is um, endurance. Yes. So you know that can be the finest marathon runner amongst their class, but yeah, the army's different. So that's yeah. it. You know they're getting like one meal a day. <laughs> yeah. No, it it's um yeah. There's a reason why I'm not in the military, and it isn't just because I have a back problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I have, have only a... got one eye that works, which kind of discounts me from any service. So. Yeah. yeah, I just can't. But uh, I admire the hell out of the people who can. I just couldn't. Um, so, uh, Jeannie says uh, she might be along at some point. So, I thought I would share that with everybody because I know everybody loves Jeannie. Um, so, yeah, let's see. I don't even know where to start. Uh, what seems like a good place to start? Uh, oh, okay. Uh, Pentagon now admits that it shipped live anthrax to all states and nine countries. <laughs> this week's embarrassing revelation is the news that the Department of Defense mistakenly shipped live anthrax spores to 50 states and nine countries, many more than they had previously admitted to. While this poses no immediate public health threat, as anthrax is not spread person to person, the continued reports of lapses certainly do not inspire confidence. Um, the current scorecard shows that anthrax shipments from Dugway Proving Ground were sent to 194 labs in all states, three territories, Guam, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, and Washington, D.C., and to Japan, United Kingdom, South Korea, Australia, Canada, Italy, Germany, Norway, and Switzerland. This is a marked increase from the initial May 18th report of 18 labs in nine states, and then the June edition of two countries. Uh, Deputy Defense Secretary Bob Work was certainly prescient when he said in June that the scandal over the military's mistaken shipment of live anthrax spores around the world would get worse. Uh, Work described the errors at Dugway diplomatically, saying, by any measure, this was a massive institutional failure with a potentially dangerous biotoxin. That more shipments were found is not a surprise. The problem is that the Pentagon just keeps this news trickling out, a constant reminder of their embarrassing mistakes. As Dr. Amesh Ajaya, UPMC biosecurity expert, noted, it is not surprising that the mistaken live anthrax shipments were wide-reaching given that there was a clearly a problem with how deactivation of the spores was confirmed. The event reaffirms the need to ensure that deactivation of anthrax spores is confirmed prior to shipment. There have been no deaths or serious illness from this error, although some workers were given Cipro. If you've ever been sick and you've gotten Cipro, you know what that is. As a prophylaxis against infection. A bigger problem is that despite the hand-wringing and reviews, the Pentagon has not found a, quote, single root cause for its worst biosafety fiasco in years. Dugway made two major errors repeatedly over a decade. 
first, they failed to irradiate the anthrax spores adequately to inactivate them. Secondly, their test to confirm that the anthrax was dead was inadequate. The same pattern was seen last year in a lapse by the CDC, which sent live anthrax spores to another lab. Uh, as noted last year, someone took shortcuts using unapproved sterilization techniques. The U.S. is not alone in botching handling of selected agents. The Guardian has found many similar mistakes at U.K. labs. The Pentagon placed the blame for the anthrax fiasco on a lack of scientific consensus. Instead, they should look at what they've allowed in why they have allowed inadequate procedures to go on for decades without appropriate safeguards and why there is no consensus between the CDC and Defense Department as to how anthrax should be treated. A Government Accountability Office report in June also found that the Defense Department also mismanaged the program to fix crumbling infrastructure at its vast array of facilities for chemical and biological defense. The problems just aren't with anthrax. In a noteworthy series, USA Today's Allison Young and Mick, Nick Penn-Standler have reported on other security failures with bioterror germs. The GAO found a series of bio-systematic safety lapses and has recommended a single agency have oversight of biotoxins rather than a hodgepodge of minor fixes. I reiterate what I said previously, that the Department of Defense should look at these problems from a system safety engineering perspective. As MIT's Dr. Nancy Levison stated, so if it's a procedures problem, they should not just investigate and fix the procedures. Systems thinking would require they also examine why inadequate procedures were created and allowed to exist and how to prevent that in the future. It would be refreshing if the Defense Department undertook this type of comprehensive review so that we could get on with research and important issues. Addendum. After this was posted, the Department of Defense announced this. Secretary of the Army John M. McHugh has directed an immediate safety review at all nine of the Department of Defense lab facilities involved in the production, shipment, and handling of live and inactivated selected agents and toxins. The Army has also expanded existing supervision of production, handling, testing, and shipment of anthrax to include critical reagents program and other agents and toxins. This suspension applies to all four DOD labs involved in these activities, Dugway Proving Ground, Life Sciences Test Facility, Edgewood Chemical and Biological Center, and the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute for Infectious Diseases, USAMRED and the Naval Medical Research Center, Biological Defense Research yeah, yeah, facility. That's... Well, funnily enough, the the most uh, worrying line I find in that whole whole article is the bit the Guardian found many similar mistakes at UK labs. Because we have versions of anthrax that you can't kill with normal radiation techniques. There's this island, I'm sure you've heard about that. Yeah, I you know where the anthrax have. was live for sixty years <laughs> before they got rid of it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's hard to kill. It is. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, once they weaponize something that lives in an animal, too. I mean, that yeah. just creates a whole host of new problems. Do you know they still haven't managed to sell Grunyard, that little island? Wonder why. <laughs> yeah, so, it's no. Uh, honest, it's clear of all biotoxins now. Yeah, you're all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. We're just going to run over there. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was terrifying. Yes. 
Um, I know. Everybody's used to me just talking about pretty much um, their privacy being invaded. And I'll get to that, too, because, you know, they wouldn't be an anti-nanny without that. <laughs> it's true. Okay. So nobody knows how many federal agencies exist. As bureaucracy spalls, sprawls, nobody can say with complete authority exactly how many federal agencies exist. The twice annual Unified Agenda of Federal Deregulatory and Regulatory Actions, which compiles agency regulatory plans in the federal pipeline, listed 60 agencies in the spring 2015 edition, a count that can vary slightly from report to report. The fall 2014 edition also contained many agencies. The regulatory plan also listed 60. The Administrative Conference of the United States lists 115 agencies in the appendix of its source book of the United States of Executive Agencies, but notes, there is no authoritative list of government agencies. For example, FOIA Gov, maintained by the Department of Justice, lists 78 independent executive agencies and 174 components of the executive departments as units that comply with the Freedom of Information Act requirements imposed on every federal agency. This appears to be on the conservative end of the range of possible agency definitions. The United States Government Manual lists 96 independent executive units and 220 components of the executive departments. An even more inclusive listing comes from USA.gov, which lists 137 independent executive agencies and 268 units in the cabinet. In a 2015 Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, one senator noted that, quote, the Federal Register indicates that there are over 430 departments, agencies, and sub-agencies in the federal government. The online Federal Register Index depicts 257. Okay, so the list that I'm going to read is going to tell you exactly how many they say there are. The Unified Agenda says 60. The Administrative Conference of the United States says 115. FOIA.gov says 252. The United States Government Manual says 316. The Federal Regulations Index says 257. Regulations.gov says 89. So if nobody knows how many agencies exist, and how many agencies make the rules for how we're supposed to live. Um, that means we don't know how many people work for the government. We don't know how many contractors work for the government. We don't know how many people making rules there are for us. But when you, when you don't know this kind of thing, it's sort of dangerous. You know, it means your government has gotten too sprawling, too big, and too far out of control for it to even keep track of itself. You, you know what they'll do? They're, they're going to create a federal agency to keep track of federal agencies. <laughs> they might need more than one. So they're going yeah. to need one yeah. to keep track of the ones they tell us about and one to keep track of the ones they don't tell us about? Probably. <laughs> but the secret ones, funny. you'll probably need a few of those. Yeah. Because <laughs> one's never good enough, you know. If you're going to yeah. have a secret group, you know, you've got to have four or five at least. All spying on each other. Uh. Yeah. Well, I mean, the problem is that so many of these agencies go into federal rulemaking, which yes. is something only our Congress is supposed to do. So you don't know who's making the laws and the regulations that affect you. And that means you have no one you can effectively complain to or voice your concerns to. 
that's a big problem with your government when you have no one you can address your concerns to. Well, you're supposed to be able to address your concerns to the president. Unfortunately, he's too busy doing reality TV shows. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I yeah, I think um, it's all bread and circuses now, pretty much. Yeah. Politically. So, yeah, I just thought that was interesting that nobody can really agree on the number. Means there's a problem. I mean, hell, there's probably people who are working for government agencies that don't actually realize they're working for a government agency. Isn't that a happy idea? Because, <laughs> you know, they're, they just get employed by some company with a name. True. The government's never mentioned, and they happily do their job. But they're probably a government agency. <laughs> Very true. That's really, really true. So, yeah, you just don't know. You don't know anymore. So, um, did you see the this one? Oh. Hang on. Where are you? You are here. Because this is where I'm going to go next. Just to lighten things up a bit. Okay. Uh, chimpanzees who attacked drone with a stick took unique and deliberate action, say researchers. It's not just humans who are concerned about the privacy implications of drones. An Anaheim TV station lost one of its expensive drones after a chimpanzee managed to knock it out of the sky with a stick as it was supposed to be capturing footage of the Royal Burger Zoo chimp in an enclosure for a TV show. The April incident has now been analyzed by researchers who claim it was a unique and deliberate action. In an article in the Journal of Primates published by Springer, Jan von Hoof and Boss and his partner uh, explain <laughs> All right. Ex- that's awesome. Explain yeah. it as yet another example of chimpanzees make do attitude using whatever's hand and hand as tools. The use of the stick as a weapon in this context was a unique action, comments Van Hoof. It seemed deliberate given the decision to collect it and carry it to a place where the drone might be attacked. The incident happened earlier this year, April 10th, when a Dutch television crew was filming at the zoo in Anaheim. The idea was to use a drone to film the chimpanzees in their compound from different close-up angles. The drone already caught the chimpanzees' attention during a practice run. Some grabbed willow twigs off the ground, while four animals took these along when they climbed up scaffolding near where the drone was hovering. This behavior is not frequently observed among other chimps. Uh, filming started when the next drones flew over. It zoomed in on the two chimpanzees. Um, they were seated on the scaffolding, holding onto their twigs, which were about six feet long. Tushi made two sweeps. That's one of the chimpanzees with hers. The second was successful in downing the drone and ultimately broke it. So, yeah, we're not the only ones who have an issue with drones. I just think that's funny. Well, yeah, I mean, yes, they're they're apes. They they don't like small, loud, buzzing things. Much yeah. like we don't like small, loud, buzzing things. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess that's it. The video was pretty interesting, though. Um, they don't look really impressed with the drone. Just like I'm not really impressed with drones. But that's just me, and I'm just paranoid. I oh, guess. no, dro- drones have their uses. Just, yeah. They're trying to use them for everything. It's, oh, we, we could use it for this. You don't need to, yeah, really. 
<laughs> well, they use them for everything. Yeah. They're like, oh, we've got a really expensive camera. Let's use it. There's a there's a wedding photographer in Edinburgh who bought what? a dr- who bought a drone. Had a nice expensive camera on it, and he lost it for six months. Because it flew out, he was test flying it, it flew out of range of the controls and he didn't know where it had gone. <laughs> they found it on a, a church day. roof. Because when it had gone out of range, it knew it had gone out of range. And it found itself a flat place to land on. Well, at least it was smart to enough to do roof. that. Yeah. Not continue circling, I guess. Yeah. <sighs> um, I guess I'm going to talk about this one. Uh, Texas med boards let DEA sneak peeks at patient records. The Drug Enforcement Administration has been sifting through hundreds of supposedly private medical files looking for Texas doctors and patients to prosecute without the use of warrants. Instead, the agents are tricking doctors and nurses into thinking they're with the Texas Medical Board. When that doesn't work, they're sending doctors penas demanding medical records without court approval. The DEA can't even count how many times it has resorted to the practice nationwide. A spokesman estimated it was in the thousands. But as a legal brief filed last week points out, lawyers for the federal government can't find a single case which a court has authorized the use of such a broad array of patient information with such a sparse record as to why it needs such information. Earlier this year, a federal judge in Texas did just that setting up a showdown in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals over whether the DEA needs a reason to go rummaging through private medical records in search of pill mills and prescription drug abusers. Without the legalese, the issue is simple. How good a reason does the DEA need to get access to medical records? The DEA doesn't think it needs much of one. Attorneys for Dallas-area doctors Joseph and Abbas Zada argue the DEA should not be allowed to circumvent the requirements of a warrant and should be required to show probable cause. Failing that, they should at least have to justify their intrusions to a judge who's acting more as more than a rubber stamp. The DEA's practice of avoiding warrant requirements has produced this absurdity. If you have a prescription for Adderall or Oxycontin, you might be safer getting your drugs on the street than through your own doctor. Street dealers, after all, don't keep medical records, and they're afforded more constitutional protections than medical practitioners. That is, cops still need a warrant to search them. In Texas, the DEA's criminal investigators do an end run around the Constitution's warrant requirements by getting the Texas Medical Board to order doctors to open their records. In that Fifth Circuit court case that's about to set an important precedent, DEA agents spent hours examining private medical records after tricking a nurse into believing they were with the medical board. The trick was easy. Three DEA agents showed up at a Dallas doctor's office, accompanied by a medical board investigator, who told the nurse they were with the state medical board, according to a deposition in the case. The other three persons, along with her, kept silent. Mary Robinson, the medical board's executive director, testified last year in a legislative hearing that her agency does that sort of thing 20 to 40 times a year. But it took some grilling by Representative Bill Zelder, Republican of Arlington, to get that out of her. How many times do you show up at a doctor's office with the DEA and not tell them that the DEA is with you? He asked her at a September 24th hearing. I'm not sure what you mean by that, Robinson said. Well... 
I mean that when they show up, they say, we're with the Texas Medical Board, period. That is what we do for our part, Robinson said. The DEA has its own responsibility. Zelder gave an example almost identical to the facts in the Zadea lawsuit. Medical Board investigators got the DEA two hours access to certified confidential medical records through misrepresenting who they were. When the doctor's lawyer showed up demanding to see some IDs, the party ended. You don't find that an unconstitutional search through fraudulent non-disclosures, Zelder demanded. Did your investigators not know that they had DEA agents with them? There wasn't anything we did that could be considered unconstitutional, Robinson answered, but she couldn't speak for the DEA. It turned out that each of the 20 to 40 times a year medical investigators turn up unannounced demanding to see records. They're actually working with the DEA. The problem is this. The medical board has authority to issue administrative subpoenas, as they're called it, because it's in the business of administering the medical industry. The DEA isn't. It's in the business of criminal investigations, which can be hindered by the Fourth Amendment. The entire apparatus of administrative law is something of a shadow government grafted onto a constitutional system back in the New Deal era, and the shadow government has few safeguards. Rather than checks and balances, the regulatory state is characterized by agencies that handle all of the investigation, prosecution, adjunctation, and appeals in-house, with little interference from other bodies. The DEA has noticed how convenient it is simply to write a letter demanding all the evidence one might need. So in some cases, such as the Deas, where the initial subterfuge fails, the DEA simply writes the doctors its own administrative subpoena, even though, by its own admission, it's looking for evidence in potential criminal cases against doctors and patients. All too often, the doctors behave much like the telecom companies who are pressured by the NSA to share customer records. In fact, there are so few cases of doctors actually fighting back against the government's lawyers that they are building their case on one from 1950 in which regulators got access to the financial records of the Morton Salt Company. In 2014, a federal court in Oregon agreed with the American Civil Liberties Union that a database of prescriptions was protected by medical privacy rights and that the DEA would need a warrant to access it. That expectation of privacy will also factor into the decision for the Fifth Circuit. Unlike some privacy rights, this one is no novelty. Arguing on behalf of the Associations of American Physicians and Surgeons, attorney Andrew Shelfe points out that patient privacy dates back 2,500 years to the Hippocratic Oath, which states, All that may come to my knowledge in the exercise of my profession, which ought not to be spread abroad, I will keep my secret and never reveal. The Fifth Circuit may not decide to impose a standard of probable cause on law enforcement, but any standard of evidence would be an improvement on nothing, which is what investigators apparently have on the Zadeas. Zelder has examined volumes of secret medical board records under his legislative privilege, and although he sworn to secrecy about them, he said that during the hearing, the medical board had confirmed that the Zadeas weren't running pill mills and there was zero evidence of non-therapeutic prescribing. Yet a federal court upheld the subpoenas based on vague testimony from a DEA investigator that information developed to an investigation that indicated that Dr. Joseph Zadea may have violated the law. That little phrase illustrates the difference between typical law enforcement and whatever the DEA is up to here. Cops don't swear that information developed. 
they tell the judge what it is that is if they want their warrant signed oh yeah it shows you how dodgy it's getting over your way because oh, I mean, shit yeah. over here there have been court cases where that sort of thing's gone on and judges have thrown the cases out because mm-hmm. it's like you, you gained information illegally because uh, well, over here much like how it's supposed to be over your way <laughs> <laughs> the only way people can get at your medical records is you giving permission or a judge signing an right. order. Well, I mean, and that's, that's how the way it should be. be. I mean, try accessing your own medical records. That's some fun. I can. I can just go to my, in the UK and just go to your doctor's office and go, I want oh, to see my here records. Here it's, it's, what do you want to see? Okay, well, we're going to photocopy that pertinent page and that pertinent page. Then we have to block this out, so you have to leave the room. It's very interesting. No, over um, here, they just hand you your file. <laughs> not so much Cause here. Because here, legally, it belongs to you. Well, it should legally belong to you, because yeah. then it actually would be a violation of your Fourth Amendment rights to not have your persons and homes and papers and books searched without a warrant explaining exactly what they're looking for that would be a way to fix it if the fourth amendment were a functional thing and if the constitution were the actual document they tell us it is yeah so i don't exactly think it is but uh what can i say so yeah um if you live in the if you live in texas and you're taking pain medication watch out yeah, guys, don't know guys what the DA is up bo- to. <laughs> body armor might turn up at your house. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty bad. I mean, and these are things I don't want to say. I don't think I ever read about these things years ago. I mean, I'm sure they happened, but I don't remember it being so blatant. It, I I think I've said it before too. Years ago, it seemed like all of the corruption was kind of hidden. Now it's like they don't try to hide any of it at all. Part part of it is these agencies have now got so big. Right, when they used to be doing it, there was less of them, so it was less noticeable. (laughs) There's more of them, (laughs) and they're doing more of it, so it's more noticeable. Very true. Now, also, I think uh, we have improved communication systems. Well, that as well, News gets out a lot quicker. Well, one of the best gossips in the world is those medical receptionists. I... As soon as that sort of inspection's going on, I'm sure every every medical receptionist in the whole area, in the whole county, (laughs) probably knows within 20 minutes, oh, the inspectors are going round. (laughs) Oh, sure. I'm sure. Well, I mean... That's what I've seen it happen in the hotel industry. You start well, I mean, phoning that, around all the local hotels, the health inspector's doing a tour. <laughs> That's the only way you can keep in the loop, you know. Mm. Hope that people avoid the same pitfalls you fell into. Okay. Um, Apple TV. <laughs> <laughs> You're laughing. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Okay. One of the biggest features we're expecting to see in the new Apple TV is really troubling for privacy experts, say. Next week, Apple is expected to make a long-awaited upgrade to its Apple TV set-top box, which hasn't been refreshed since 2012. The device is said to bring a handful of new features to Apple TV that we've seen in companies' other devices, such as a new interface, 
and App Store and Apple's virtual assistant, Surrey. Gene Munster, oh my God, that's great, an analyst with Piper Jaffray, who's usually plugged into what the company is working on, thinks the new Apple TV will be able to recognize our voices without the press of a button. That feature could raise privacy concerns. Surrey is expected to play a really big role in the next Apple TV. A report from the usually accurate Mike Gurman says we'll be able to control nearly every aspect of our TV with our voices. And the new remotes for the Apple TV will even have a little button that activates Surrey, he reports. But there's also another theory for how we might be able to use Surrey in the new Apple TV. In a note just released last week, Munster says the new Apple TV could also come with a passive listening feature. He writes, the new Apple TV could include passive listening similar to Amazon's Echo that could extend beyond content and search to control HomeKit, which would control smart devices in your home. It sounds like Munster believes the Apple TV may allow you to activate commands simply by saying, hey, Surrey, to start a dialogue rather than just holding a button down on the remote control. This is similar to what you can already do with the iPhone. Within the settings menu, you can enable the hands-free version of Siri that lets you trigger the feature by simply saying a phrase, Through the though the new feature only works when the iPhone is plugged into a power outlet for charging. The security experts, however, believe this could cause trouble. There are a lot of unanswered questions about these always listening devices that have yet to be answered, such as how they can use the data who they can share it with, and whether or not they're using the data for alternative purposes. The license agreements have an extraordinarily wide latitude, Bruce Shiner, a fellow at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard Law, said to Business Insider, and that's a huge worry. The new Apple TV wouldn't be the only gadget to boost this compatibility. Amazon touts its Echo as a combination of speaker and virtual assistant that you can speak to naturally when you have a question. You would either press a button or say a wake word to tell the speaker that it's time to listen. Your requests are then beamed into the cloud to receive an answer. You can see everything the Echo has recorded and delete commands too. Motorola's Moto X smartphone also allows you to access Google Now by simply saying a phrase without pressing any buttons on the phone. Samsung was in hot water earlier this year over its smart TVs, which pick up your speech so that you can control your television hands-free. Any of these devices and services allow you to turn off their voice recognition capabilities at any time. But even if you do agree to their terms and conditions, there's still a reason to be concerned, according to Mark Rottenberg, president and executive director of the Electronic Privacy Information Center, which filed a complaint to the Federal Trade Commission regarding Samsung smart TVs in February. Quote, we don't think it's enough to bury somewhere in the terms and conditions of the product. What basically becomes a type of consent where the consumer says, it's okay to do this. I understand the risk, Rottenberg said to Business Insider. Even if the owner of this device consents to it, it's the likely case that other people inside the home haven't. These type of gadgets don't actually listen, i.e. record your speech or send information to a server in the cloud or third party, unless you say a trigger phrase. And you can erase any of your queries from Google and Amazon at any time. According to Shiner, however, that's still troubling because it means the gadgets are surveilling in order to detect those trigger phrases. It's impossible to know if you say the word unless it listens, he says. 
What are they doing with the data they're hearing? And under what rules did they allow the government to listen in? Rottenberg believes that there should be legislation in place that defines what companies can do with the data obtained from these always listening gadgets. We're not against the new technologies that provide different ways to get online, Rottenberg said. What we're objecting to is the secretive monitoring of activity inside the house. And that's essentially the problem with always on devices. It's a little too easy. Shiner thinks that these types of privacy concerns will always exist as personal technology evolves and our gadgets have wider access to what we're doing and saying. Surveillance is all about convenience, he said. Your phone knows where you are when you wake up, when you go to sleep. It knows all that stuff, and you're happy with that because it rings when someone calls you. And, and they missed out the, the other new one, which is Windows 10 and Cortana. Yeah, I... Mm-mm. And well, <laughs> it does you same. know, a lot of the other problems with, and I didn't get into it this week because I figured I would take it easy on the hacker ease this week. <laughs> but you know, they've they've backwards enabled that in Windows Seven and Eight. So if you have Windows Seven and Windows Eight, all of the potential surveillance of you and what you do is already happening. Yes. So, you know, there Another is no thing from Microsoft it if you use a Windows kind of failed to tell anyone, yeah. <laughs> Which is why it doesn't make a difference if you upgrade or not, really. No, not anymore. No. But, you know, at least you had some rudimentary semblance of privacy or at least what passes for it these days. Yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of neat. <laughs> The only yes, privacy left is what goes yeah, on I, I, between I your laughed, ears. I laughed because, yeah, Apple's like lost to the table with the, this. And also yeah. their TV box isn't actually that good. It's going to have to be a hell of a box to uh, justify its price tag now. Oh, I don't know. What the hell's wrong with a Roku box? Exactly. That's what I mean. You can get you you can go to, you can go to somewhere like Fast Tech and buy a TV box for ten $10. Well, I mean, It'll I know they've the got same. like the new, they've got the new Android boxes. I haven't tried one yet, but I mean, Roku is fine yeah. for most people's purposes. Or hell, not that anybody wants to buy anything from Amazon, but like the Fire Stick is fine. Now yeah. it does all the same things. Me, I have a decent desktop computer. If I ever buy a TV, I could hook it up to the computer anyway. So, yeah. well, right, but you know, you also have a nice desktop, and you don't have a TV because you live in a country where they come around. We need our TV license fee. Oh, they're supposed to be coming this week, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Got a letter. Yeah, we're coming round. It's like, good, we're... we'll do what we usually do. Open the door. They say their spiel. We say no thank you and close the door on them. And they can't <laughs> do anything. <laughs> no thank you. We need to come inspect your house. Yeah, no thank you. Well, they have no legal right to enter. So, mm. yeah, they can't. Well, it doesn't really <sighs> matter so much here. Legal they, right to enter. The TV license thing is hilarious. All all these people they take to court and prosecute have all let them in their house to see that they have a TV illegally. But if they hadn't let them in the house, <laughs> they couldn't <laughs> prosecute them. That's right. Well, because <laughs> they've mean, no legal, they've no legal standing to enter your property. They can, just, but they have to know you have a TV. You have to admit it to it, and they have to have your name so they can get a judge to sign a warrant. And then the police will go along with them and uh, force entry. But otherwise, you can just shut the door on them and go, no, thank you. As long as you're polite, you know. 
<laughs> That's kind of ridiculous when you think about it. Yeah. It's a ta- As people put it, it's, it's a tax on poor people because poor people tend to like watching TV. <laughs> well, well, they can't really afford to do much else. Um, yeah. But it, most tax is regressive. It, it yeah. doesn't tax the people at the top. It never has. It's always gone after the poor, the middle class. That's a Because I, I, I very much doubt that the television inspectors in the UK spend a lot of time going to stately homes, <laughs> uh, checking if they have a TV license. Uh, <laughs> more more so, importantly, because a lot of the stately homes are still owned by traditional old-fashioned families who might shoot them with a shotgun if they show up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny how the law just applies to some people and not others. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I need to find something that's kind of small because it's like quarter of. And uh, Alex will be coming on at seven to do the Kasab date if that's what you're waiting for. Um, that'll be at seven. So most of the stuff I have tonight is really really long. The Department of Defense article is really really long. Okay. Um, this one's. No, not this one. I think we'll go with this. A benefit or big brother. NYC unveils pilot program to track driving habits. Little black box under the steering wheel records data for drive smart. It's a new city pilot program to track how you drive, when you drive, how fast you drive, and how much gas you use. The Department of Transportation says it will help fix street problems. Others say it's like Big Brother is watching you. CBS 2's Marsha Kramer reported Friday. It's a tiny black box about the size of a pack of gum that is installed right under the steering wheel. It will allow city officials under a program called, quote, Drive Smart to collect and process and access data about how you drive, if you drive like a maniac or if you're Mr. or Mrs. Slowpoke. It can tell the G-force of hard stopping or hard acceleration and a hard turn, DOT senior project manager Alex Keterling said. So the driver, as well as the service provider, are able to look at speeds, hard braking events, time of day, and basic GPS. City officials say they'll use the information to make the streets safer, but drivers can also allow various DOT partners to use the information. Allstate, for example, will give you insurance discounts of up to 10 to 30%. And that Tapia will get you home faster with less congested routes, all of it hooked up to smartphone apps. Security expert Manny Gomez says there are many reasons to just say no to this program, like, for instance, the dangers of hacking. Anything is hackable, as we've already seen. Sony was hacked, the U.S. government was hacked, so clearly the New York, the city of New York could be hacked, and this information could easily become public, Gomez said. Gomez questions whether the city could use the information against people. Gee, would, why would you think that? The government only has your best, informa- <laughs> best intentions at heart. And DOT officials said that it will not happen. All of the data is anonymous. We actually erase the data from our database every 48 hours, Keteling said. New Yorkers seem split on the idea. More control over people. I wouldn't be down for that. Definitely not, Brian Bradford said. Yeah, I'd definitely do that. 30% is 30%, one woman said of the potential insurance discount. Enough, enough, enough. There is the NSA, the CIA, the FBI. 
You have more information than you need, taxi driver Chad said. The Department of Transportation is looking for 400 volunteers to participate in a year-long program. You have to have a valid driver's license and drive in the city at least four days a week. In addition to an app to reduce car insurance rates, there are apps to tell you where to buy the cheapest gas and how to drive safely. And they all exist without you having to sign up for a shitty government program where they yes. can track you. Um, well, The whole car trucking thing, that's been around for quite a while, actually. Uh, I know. The Like your BMWs, Mercedes, they've mm-hmm. been collecting that data for years. It's how they design the next generation of cars. You know, oh, how can we improve the braking systems? Right, how can we but improve I think... the engine management? But now it's being used, it's insurance companies that's hit on this idea because mm-hmm. you've got it over here as well. Yeah. Just n- none of the cities have gone, oh, we're going to track people. Over here it's just the insurance companies. But, yeah. Well, you know, what New York does, everybody else rushes to do. So. Mm-hmm. But as you say, you can download the app for the car insurance without having to sign up to tell the city <laughs> what you're doing with your yeah, <laughs> car. Or I mean, gas prices. I mean, you, yeah. you really don't. You don't need to plug the city into what you do in your car. No. You know. Um, I do agree with the the insurance company thing is is a good idea because yeah, if you're a safe driver, it means you're not paying horrendously extra for all the crazy drivers. Because mm. <laughs> they can you know, confirm, oh yeah, they're always within this speed limit. Yeah, but you know, everything is. I don't know. Everything's so interconnected now. I mean, my God, yeah. I went to get replacement vanity light bulbs the other day, and I'm looking at them, you know, because I want something that's, you know, better technology. It's going to last me a while. It's going to reduce my electric bill. Yeah. I'm looking at this stuff. Some of the light bulbs have IP addresses. Yes. Do. They, I'm like, no, we'll just go with the older, more flawed technology. Everything's connected. They well, don't need to some, see some, how some I of the drive light bulbs my these days are remote controllable. So, yeah. I'm just saying, they just yeah. don't need to. They're, it's it's unnecessary. It's <laughs> stupid. It's, yeah, there you is need, no privacy. Your telling- they can just track your fucking smartphone if they want to see how you drive. They do need to put an app on it to do it, but yeah. Uh, that doesn't bother my government. Yeah. They send it out with like ransomware and malware and emails and everything else. They don't give a shit. If they want to know something, they'll find a way to know it. But why you would want to make it easy for them, <laughs> I don't understand. So. Well, I'll say the, the big one is now, you know, you now have, um, you now have um, basically electronics hardwired in engine blocks. That oh, monitor yeah. the whole car. Oh. So. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, what about the guy who last year got sued by John Deere for trying to fix his tractor himself? Yeah. How dare he? There was computer hardware and software on that tractor that meant he was violating. He was violating something copyright. Yeah. Or something by trying to fix his own tractor. The man's a farmer. That's what farmers do. Well, technically, it should only have been if he tried to alter the software, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he knew it was a problem until he tried to fix it himself. Yeah, so because mechanical stuff they can't really argue in court too well, although I'm sure they tried. Oh <laughs> well, you know. But uh, yeah, it's only if he did a software infringement. Well, of course, it. but don't forget, you know, over here our corporations are people. Yes. 
So they have yeah, more rights substantially than they should have. Yeah, they're trying to roll it out worldwide with the TTP, TTP. and TTIP. Yeah. yeah. That's a pretty that's a pretty, pretty hideous piece of treaty there. Well, funnily enough, the EU is still telling them to bugger off at the minute. So hopefully well, that continues. It, it's what they want to do with copyright. They mm-hmm. want to make it a lifetime thing. But not yeah, the that's... lifetime of the author. No, the lifetime of the company that country. owns the yeah company country yeah. Which is so insane. no matter what yeah. you're downloading, say Beethoven's Fifth, you know, Austria can come get you. Yeah, that just doesn't seem right to me. There, and there's so many problems with it. Um, we'll all have to move to Sweden or something. Yeah. I you know I would tell people to go to WikiLeaks and look at this stuff, but. Um, some of the stuff coming out of WikiLeaks, and it's not that it's bad, but some of it's coming out with keyloggers on it when you download your when you yeah. download the files. So if you do go to look at this stuff, really be careful. I, I have never gone to WikiLeaks. <laughs> I've and I've I read some would. of the data dumps. That's fucking hellacious stuff. Oh yeah. So, yeah. Um. Well, it's almost seven o'clock. Not quite. Just a couple minutes. Um, let me see if Alex is ready. I don't even know if he's home yet. Because, um, well, you know, Skype. most people had today off. But yeah. Alex and I both had to work. So Yeah, it was a holiday over here as well. Yeah. Oh, well, you yeah. know, I feel so bad for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> had a whole nice day not having to work. That's that's dire. Um, so did you do anything? Any public holidays are just another day to me. I mean, it makes no difference that's, to me. So. That's that's true. I don't even know what I was thinking, but <laughs> right. Let's see if we can find Alex then. Yeah. Welcome, Alex. Hi, Alex. Hello. Welcome to the CASA update for the week of 9-7-2015. How are you doing, Alex? Oh, hang on. Good. Recording software is not recording. Okay. Um, okay. So, just need to, uh, take, take two? Yeah. Well, hang Let on. Let me know when. Mm. Now? And not yet. No. I'm restarting okay. the software. <laughs> I think it was the Skype issues earlier. Of, uh, yeah, Skype is just acting up terribly. Sorry about that, Alex. No, it's okay. It's, just, it's too, too bad we're on, you know, audio only. We can't hang a picture of, like, you know, hang in there, kitty. We'll be right back. <laughs> right. What I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to edit it out of the show. <laughs> oh, You know, okay. grab it out of the show. Okay. For, Are you... Yeah, for some reason... Hang on, one I, more second to try. I was going to say Audacity's acting up. That's sad. Right, hang on, hang on. No, I've managed to get it to work. Right, so okay. go for it. Okay. Good evening and welcome to the CASA update for the week of 9-7-2015. Hi, Alex. How are you this evening? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. So what's been happening? Ah. <sighs> <laughs> Where to begin? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, relatively quiet. You know, it's still kind of summer. I guess today is the unofficial end of summer, but um, uh, you know, things will be 
yeah. sort of picking back up here for, for the next several months. Um, but the, uh, the big news, in case anybody missed it, um, is the uh, Chicago. Um, uh, we have a call to action up for this, sort of. It, uh, last week, the mayor had three different uh, kind of town hall hearings in Chicago, mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, which is really just sort of an opportunity for the public to come out and yell at the mayor for um, at least one of the uh, increases was on property taxes. Um, and, nice. and then, of course, you know, some other proposals that were in there, uh, one cent per ounce sugary beverage tax, oh, um, something about trash pickup, and, of course, uh, trying to achieve tax parity with combustible cigarettes. Um, and I found this oh, kind of probably oversimplified infographic uh, on rebootillinois.com. Okay. They worked it out. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty funny. Um, they have a picture of an ego style um, with a CE4 e-cig set up here. Uh, and, and if you, if you e-cig five times a week at, at 52 weeks, uh, it'll cost you an extra $1,864 a year. Holy crap. Um, these people are out of their minds. <laughs> yeah. Again, we, we sort of have policymakers doing estimates based on what they see a single like brand going for at the convenience store or, you know, guessing what, and, and, you know, in all honesty, there are people who exist by purchase, you know, that their experience in vaping is limited to single-like purchases, um, which, you know, is, if you're one of those people, that's, that's great. Um, but, uh, you're, you're sort of throwing a lot of money away. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and if, uh, Mayor Rahm Emanuel has his way, you'll be throwing away even more money. Um, so, uh, but it, you know, I mean, dollars and cents aside, the real focus here is the fact that they're trying to tax e-cigarettes at a rate comparable to smoking. Um, so at this point, all that we really have is, you know, there were three, town hall style hearings. And I saw at least one person post, uh, on Facebook about it, that they, they did attend. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at the third hearing, there was some live tweeting going on. Uh, somebody mentioned a, a young man getting up and talking about the e-cigarette tax. So, uh, at least one person, I think a few in Chicago got the message and, um, were able to attend. And my apologies. I got that out day late. Um, but uh, so we'll be following up shortly um, with a, a call to action, uh, trying to generate actual phone calls. Um, Chicago, like New York City, like probably Los Angeles, uh, it, it's a big city with lots of city council members. So um, I, I just kind of want to forewarn anybody who's paying attention to what we are putting out for Chicago. Um, it's likely to be 
a lot more complicated than our normal state level calls to action. Um, uh, the system that we use doesn't go down as far as municipal uh, uh, leadership. So um, it's uh, it'll be a little bit more manual than what people are used to. Um, but uh, yeah, obviously uh, we are opposed to this tax and would like to get a lot of people hooting and hollering uh, uh, against it in Chicago. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's Chicago. I, California, um, I, I, I don't really have much, I don't have a substantive update for this other than to say people should continue emailing California lawmakers and calling them. The big push last week was to get people to make phone calls. Um, so I, would, I should probably send out another reminder to California vapors uh, to participate in our call to action. Um, I, I am looking up right now. I just want to see where we're at in terms of how many people have uh, participated okay. um, in our in an email campaign. This is pretty dismal. Um, 1,500 people have sent emails in California. Mm. Um, that's, I mean, you know, as far as advocacy efforts go, that's right. above average, I mm -hmm. guess, <laughs> considering <laughs> we have a little under 5,000 members in California. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that there are some people that are pulling a lot of weight in California and, uh, and they're, they're, they're doing a, a good job, I, I think. Um, but I, I don't think that that should be a signal to the rest of the state that you guys can just kind of let them do the work. Uh, it's, it's very important that everybody, uh, everybody participate in these calls to action and, uh, and yeah, support the people who are pulling a lot of the weight. Yeah. <sighs> that, uh, that California thing is just, uh, yeah, it's not good. <laughs> and California is kind of like New York. Anything that happens there is going to happen somewhere else. You know? Uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're trendsetters and, you know, being the most populous state in the country, you know, it, kind of by default they're they're sort of making policy for the rest of the country if you're a manufacturer outside of the state of california but you want to do business in california you have to adapt to their laws and regulation and it's it's a big enough chunk of your uh your consumers that you know you sort of i think some companies are sort of forced to i mean i get i've gotten products in New Jersey with Prop 65 warnings on them, you know, because it's just cheaper to just make it for California and be done with it rather than trying to, you know, adapt yeah. to different sets of standards for the rest of the country. Well, um, yeah. You know, not such a big deal for a mattress or something, you know, there's no like, I don't know, well, I can speak too soon here. I'm sure there's some controversy <laughs> over the type of mattress that you use, um, but, you know, not so much that. Um, you know, there's not a, a huge public conversation, you know, national conversation about the harms of 
this mattress versus that mattress. <laughs> or, you know, we're not we're not trying to convince people to to move towards mattresses that you know, rather than sleeping on mats on the floor that are killing people. <laughs> you know, it, I'm trying to think of the analog here. <laughs> Sorry, it was it was it was a long hot day today for me, so I, I might forgive me if I'm a little bit loopy. Yeah, but you got to meet what's his face from Sonic Youth. Mm-hmm. That's one of the fringe benefits of my job is that occasionally a, a, a very friendly and well-known rock star shows up and rents a van. So, um, it's kind of nice. Say, if nobody has had the pleasure of, of shaking Thurston Moore's hand, uh, I recommend it. He's a very very friendly human being. Um, <laughs> That's kind of nice to hear that, though. Yeah, yeah, you don't always hear that about um, famous people. So. so far, we've had three out of four members of Sonic Youth rent from us, and they've all been super friendly and super excited to, you know, do what they do. So it's, it's pretty Good nice. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, enough about me. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me about what happened with the Kassar Research Fund. Uh, well, we've reached our goal, as as far as I know. I think we were probably what, what, a couple hundred bucks shy or something like that. Nothing, mm-hmm. nothing too terrible. But uh, yeah, that project is is for all intents and purposes fully funded, and uh, I believe I, I don't think Carl has put out a formal timeline, but I think we're looking at something uh, within the next four to five months. Um, and for those of you who are not familiar, this is our uh, uh, gateway study. Um, of course, our well, I, I think I, in the interest of fairness, it's just it's a study on whether or not there is a measurable gateway effect from initiating with electronic cigarettes and graduating to smoking. Um, unlike some popular tobacco control industry researchers. I don't think we walk into this with our minds made up saying, yeah, there's no gateway. We're totally fine here. Um, We, you know, this is honest science. So um, I think we can all guess as to what the results might be, but um, (laughs) you 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 never know till it's over, but at least we know an honest researcher will be doing it, which is, it, it bears mentioning. I mean, Carl is is very scrupulous about this stuff and, and has a lot of integrity. And in fact, has you know um, has uh, very little qualms about uh, being critical of what is perceived to be positive vaping mm-hmm. research. I think as anybody has seen um, with the recent uh, Public Health England publication. Yeah. Um, you know, and and just to just to put it out there, you know, if anybody hasn't, if you if you haven't read Carl's blog posts on this, I, I myself am woefully behind. But um, uh, you know, ninety five percent less harmful than smoking is really nothing to celebrate. <laughs> well, I, I think um, they, and I'm just gonna say, I think they gave it a number, and I, I don't think it was really based on anything. It was it looked like it was arbitrarily picked out of the air. Now I know why they did it. Mm-hmm. But I also know how it appears from reading that paper. To me, I know it appeared li- like they were trying to force it onto the medical pathway. Mm-hmm. That's how it looks from someone who's not in the UK. And I think it looked like that to a lot of people who sat there and actually read it. 
And I know that was one of Carl's big concerns. And, and I don't blame him at all because this is a consumer product, which is covered under consumer safety laws, or it should be. You know, uh, medicalizing something like this is, is borderline extreme, if not completely ridiculous. So I understand his concerns completely. Yeah, I don't know how that would necessarily work uh, in the EU or UK specifically. I mean, it is that being medicalized, is it is it just a matter of attaching the literature to the package saying this is to be used for smoking cessation? Oh, or is so. it that it's available <laughs> only through prescription? Which if it it's available... It, it, I'm pretty sure it's only available through prescription. I mean, that's essentially, that's just another, that's like a slightly watered down form of prohibition. That's not, mm-hmm. you know, so that's, that's not much to cheer about either. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, it's the, the kind of silly analogy that you get from a lot of the tobacco control people is like, you know, it's like, you know, vaping is like jumping out of a second story window compared to jumping out of a, a five story window, you know, like that's not even <laughs> close. But when you talk about 5% as harmful as smoking, that's actually a little bit more, that's a little bit closer to what they're, they're talking about. I mean, there's a lot of things that are 5% as harmful or 95% less harmful than smoking. And those things will actually cause you serious harm. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, it's, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. but yeah, I, 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 uh, I didn't read the entire 111 page publication. I, I did, but I did, but I also read when they had done the bank bailouts. I read that I've read all the pages of the affordable healthcare act and all the new pages of regulations they've added to that. Cause I'm a glutton for punishment. Um, so, so having read that, I can give you my honest opinion of that. And that's how it looked to me. So, um, so anything oh. else? Well, it, ordinarily we wrap this up by saying, uh, our testimonials project, which we will still do, but, um, for those that may not have caught it, um, uh, is it even... The European vapors, um, oh man, I'm going to have to dig up this post. Anyway, there's a European version of our testimonials project that's live now. Um, and I, done, isn't it? I believe it's mystory.com. Um, Hazel Mabe uh, posted about it uh, this weekend or late last week. Right. Um and uh, so if you are outside the United States, um, man, I, I meant to research this, but I played a game on my phone instead. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. When legislative season really comes into full swing, you won't have time to do anything on your phone. Yeah. So, you know, I need to. Okay. It's not mystory.com. That's something written in. Chinese, I believe. Um, anyway, uh, there is a Facebook post about it. I believe it's on our um, main page. Let me dig that up. That's really 
kind of neat. I think it'll be good. It'll be good to have testimonial sites rolled out like everywhere in Canada, you know, the, you know, just every country having their own and then being able to pull from those and get a large collection of stories. Absolutely. Because it really does affect us all. Go ahead. I found the link. Uh, It is mystory.evun.org. Yes. European Vapors United Network. And um, uh, we were uh, fortunate enough to be able to help them out a bit. And uh, there's some technical magic behind the scenes that I don't understand, but um, sort of allowed them to go through our uh, site to set this up. And uh, so this is uh, uh, sort of with that little bit there, a bit of a collaborative effort um, because we do work collaboratively with people we can or cooperatively, collaboratively. I don't know, we're down, we're down, you know, working with people. So, um, <laughs> yeah, we like uh, that. So, it's yeah. the working alone part that's hard. Yeah, working with people's so, easy. So all of the international vapors listening to this show and who follow Casa, uh, please head on over to mystory.ebun.org and add your story there. Um, and the call for action for HR twenty fifty eight still active. Still active. Uh, again, my apologies uh, for August. I did not complete a what could be a very valuable call to action, but um, suffice to say, uh, you know, over the course of the next few months, even there are opportunities where your federal lawmakers will be home, and uh, you can actually check uh, the. Uh, a calendar. So, you, you know, the House of Representatives calendar will tell you when there are, you know, week long or more breaks in the schedule. And, and that is, that's sort of your opportunity to get some face time with your uh, representative in Congress. And yeah. um, I, I, I do need to develop kind of a leave behind sheet uh, with mm-hmm. some important points to remind them of, of your visit. Um, okay. But uh, anybody can, of course, prepare that on their own. Um, don't say that vaping is 95% less harmful than smoking. Just leave that out. <laughs> to, to be honest, I mean, you know, the takeaway from that, back to the public health England thing, um, right. is that you know, it's a it's a it's a completely different policy approach that they are taking, which is to encourage people to switch to these products. Um, and so that's that's really the important thing to point to is that, you know. Look, there are other governments that are, are choosing a different direction. So, why don't yep. we do that instead? Um, sorry, I just derailed that thought. But that's okay. <laughs> I understood where you, I understood where you were going perfectly. I understood exactly what you meant. But yeah, um, so it, it would be a perfect time to talk to your representatives since they are home for the most part. Yes, when they are. Not all. When 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 they are there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, normally you have to sign up on your, and I'm going to say it, I'm sorry, Julie, they're on your Congress Critters website to find out when they're actually going to be in the area. 
you know, in, in one of their local offices doing the work they should be doing all the time. And you can set up an appointment to speak with them. You might not get to speak with them. Sometimes you'll get to speak with a staffer. Um, but they are there for you to voice your concerns to, and you should take full advantage of that. Always. Very few people do. So, um, so I guess that's it for this evening. Um, uh, this episode, this podcast uh, episode, <laughs> <laughs> this, yeah, podcast, webisode, whatever you want to call it. Um, Vlog? No, can't call it that. There's no video. No. Um, <laughs> the Kasaw podcast. That works. Yeah, yeah, that works. Um, so, thank you for everything you do for us, Alex. I really, really appreciate it, and I know everyone else does. And thank you, everyone out there who's a member of Kasaw. Um, and thank you for supporting us with the research fund and, and everything else, and responding to the calls to action, and just helping us to help you. And if you're not a member of CASA, please feel free to come on over to the page at CASA.org and sign up. We want to help you to defeat ridiculous regulations. Um, thank you, Alex. We'll see you next week. Great. Thanks. Have a good week. You too. Okay. So... Yeah. Are we back? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, I know it's it's funny. We go from this, and then I jump right immediately into bashing you with news about privacy. But I'm not going (laughs) to do that this time go all the way down to the very last story and I'm going to beat you to death with this one. Not so much, but um, okay. It's not a super fun story and it does make me even more wary of getting on a freaking plane. Which is hard for me to believe, but there you go. Federal air marshals say they were made to carry dubious guns, putting the public in danger. Some federal air marshals were hastily issued old and untested firearms in questionable condition before departing on international missions throughout Europe last weekend, according to sources in a letter written by lawyers representing the air marshals union. This past Friday, immediately prior to departing on international missions, air marshals in the Charlotte field office suddenly, and in some instances without any explanation, had their Sig Sauer P229 service weapons, issued late last year, replaced with P229s from 2002, without the older weapons being fired or otherwise tested, according to sources and documents. Lawyers representing the Air Marshals Association called this alarming unsafe, and in clear violation of policy, and a scathing letter said to the head of the Charlotte Field Office on Monday. On Friday evening, federal air marshals around the country were told that their P-229 pistols were defective and were being recalled by their manufacturer. Some of the weapons had problems with their safety levels, according to the TSA. An email blast sent to all air marshals carrying the subject Sig Sauer P-229 update 
outlined the issue and the two ways, depending on the type of field office, defective weapons could be fixed. This process, according to the email, was scheduled to begin Monday, August 31st. The email stated, since the distribution of the new firearms, a negative performance function was identified in a fraction of 1% of issued P229 firearms. The issue involved the safety lever, a part located in the frame of the weapon that is integral to its performance. However small the risk, this issue must be mitigated. We have worked with the TSA Office of Training and Workforce Engagement and Sig Sauer to identify the appropriate solution. In response to our feedback and out of an abundance of caution, a structured process has been established to replace the safety lever in the identified P229s. According to the email, some air marshals will be issued a TSA armorer inspector fired fully functional P229 as a temporary replacement for their firearm. But that is not what happened in Charlotte, according to AMA lawyers and sources. There, agents were baffled to receive P229 firearms from 2002 that in some cases were dirty with carbonic caking that can cause misfires, the lawyer said in their letter. Recently, just prior to several federal air marshal teams' departures on international missions, the teams had their federal air marshal service-issued firearms taken from them and replaced with firearms that the agency procured in 2002. We failed to provide any guidance or explanation of the exchange of firearms and that the FAMs were not accustomed to the replacement firearms. Management did not provide the FAMs an opportunity to conduct functional checks of their firearms, nor were they allowed to fire the weapons prior to their departure. The FAMs are unaware of whether signs, whether the sights of the firearms were properly aligned, and several of the new firearms were dirty with carbonic caking inside the muzzle or otherwise had aftermarket features on them that FAMs do not use. Such actions undoubtedly created unnecessary hazards to the FAMs and the flying public. Surely the public would disapprove of the agency sending FAMs into the sky with unfamiliar and untested weapons. The letter was also sent to the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, which is currently in the middle of a long-running investigation into the training and efficiency of the Federal Air Marshal Service, including impact model used to assign air marshals to flights deemed higher in risk. Sources told The Intercept that the air marshals were provided with questionable weapons immediately prior to departing on international missions to locations including Barcelona, Rome, and the United Kingdom. They flew those missions with no way of knowing if their weapons would work in the event of an in-flight attempted terrorist attack, sources said. Union lawyers said in their letter that the air marshals could have arguably refused to fly based on safety concerns. This latest action underscores the lack of confidence in senior leadership. John Cassarelli, national president of the Air Marshal Association, told The Intercept, taking an air marshal's firearm away minutes before an international mission and replacing it with an altered and dirty weapon is just reckless. It violates agency policy. It exposes the TSA's contempt for our core mission as law enforcement officers. Anytime an officer carries a gun that is not adjusted for them and that they have not test-fired is a danger to the public. In a statement to The Intercept, TSA spokesperson Bruce Anderson said, TSA recently identified a performance shortfall in a, in a fraction of 1% of newly received and issued Federal Air Marshal Service firearms. 
Our workforce first identified the issue during routine training and maintenance of the weapons and immediately reported it to our training staff. TSA immediately took action, working with the manufacturer to resolve this issue in an efficient and comprehensive manner. TSA is currently in the process of repairing every FAM issued within that small fraction, which will be completed within the next week. The P229 safety concerns come at a time in the past month alone, DHS and the Department of Defense intelligence agencies have issued about a dozen alerts specifically focused on threats to aviation security, according to documents obtained by The Intercept. Federal air marshals are governed by the embattled Transportation Security Administration, which has come under fire in recent months for myriad security failures reported by the Department of Homeland Security Office of Inspector General, including failure to detect 90% of prohibited items including weapons and explosives, during nationwide covert testing. And they're in charge of the Federal Marshal Service. That makes me feel great. Yeah, apparently they don't know how to store their firearms for long term. Well, and they have no fucking desire to clean them either, apparently. No. I mean, maybe it's just me, but after I fire, my firearm... I come home and disassemble it and clean it. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> I think I think the major issue here is the the, the guns from two thousand and two. They <laughs> most most manufacturers recommend if you're putting a gun into long term storage, there's a grease you're supposed to put on it that protects right. the metal. Mm-hmm. And they obviously either didn't do that. One stereo dreamer said it. They probably didn't clean them. Didn't put the right, right grease on. Mm-hmm. And didn't leave them in the sort of environment you're supposed to, which is usually yep. an airtight, dry box. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to get to get build up on the mechanism, that shit that just shouldn't happen. That <laughs> that hardly happens when you're using them and don't clean them, let alone putting it into storage. I mean, I, I'm I'm just blown away. I mean, this this goes against. Everything I know as a responsible firearm owner. Although, Everything. In, in some cases, some of the air marshals were taking the piss. Oh, we weren't given enough time to check the weapon. A quick 30-second look <laughs> would have told them if it was basically functional or not. Well, yeah, but basically functional is not... Alright. I like to, when I'm target shooting, I like to... Hit in the throat. Yeah. It's my dad's fault. My dad was a Marine. That's how you killed people and kept them quiet. I like my guns to have a really long pole where I aim way up and they shoot down into the throat area. That's just what I'm used to. That's what I like. That's how I fire a weapon. Anything that I can't work with, I can't get that shot with. Yeah. Well, in I, a situation I, where I need it, that makes me unsafe. I was primarily a target shooter, but yeah, I I, I only like uh, weapons that have a decent two stage, if not three stage trigger. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm just saying. To me, that's just that's crazy. That's crazy, crazy, crazy. I mean, giving it to him. Here you go. Oh, yeah. I know it's dirty, and you know you can't tell if it'll work. But there you go. That's <laughs> yeah. ridiculous. 
that's that's crazy. I know I always say, you know, you are the weapon, the gun is just an extension of you or the knife or whatever is just an extension of you. I grew up on a farm, that's how I think. Um and that's true. But when you're you are a weapon and you're going out there with something defective as an extension of you, that puts people in danger. And especially if your job is to keep them safe. That's oh, yeah. ridiculous. Although <laughs> I I have issues with some of the guns they issue with uh, air staff anyway. Uh, <laughs> I don't think they should have anything bigger than a thirty-two because, yeah, I really don't want them risking putting holes in the outside skin of the plane. Um, <laughs> when it gets that bad, though, I mean, yeah, it, you've got to wonder what's worse. Yes. <laughs> so okay, I said I was going to talk about this. I didn't really. I still don't want to. Oh, the law of war manual, the Pentagon responds. Um, We asked the Pentagon to explain the new law of war manual and what it means for journalists covering wars. The Pentagon's new law of war manual has prompted concern from media outlets about what the guidelines could mean for journalists covering wars. While preparing our report on new guidelines this week, we approached the U.S. Department of Defense to ask for their response to criticisms leveled against them. They were keen to put their cases forward. Here's their response. U.S. Department of Defense. We want to provide a written response to your questions, as we think there has been some misunderstanding in the press regarding the DOD Law of War Manual, and we want to engage with journalists to seek to clarify any misconceptions. To that end, we have been responding to press queries regarding the manual and are hoping to conduct further exchanges with journalists and representatives from journalism organizations. At the outset, we would like to emphasize that the department strongly supports press freedoms (laughs) and the vital work that journalists perform. Their work in gathering and reporting news is essential to a free society and the rule of law. For example, the Department of Defense policy recognizes that open and independent reporting shall be the principal means of coverage of U.S. military operations. I'm sorry, I shouldn't be laughing at this. DOD Directive 5122.05. Assistant Secretary for Defense of Public Affairs, Enclosure 3, page 9, September 5, 2008. The DOD Law of War Manual does not in any way change our existing policies and procedures with respect to interacting with the press. Rather, the purpose of the Law of War Manual is to help the department disseminate information on international law, such as the 1949 Geneva Conventions, and to be a resource for legal advisors providing advice on law of war to commanders during military operations. We hope that the readers of the manual and the viewers of your program understand that adhering to international law is of fundamental importance to the Department of Defense. This is from the listening post. The Law of War Manual defines rule of conduct on the battlefield for U.S. military personnel and their commanders. How does this manual affect journalists? The Department of Defense answers. As noted above, the manual is an informational publication on the new law of war for DOD personnel. The manual does not have any legal effect on journalists and does not affect DOD policies and procedures for engaging with the press. The manual has a short discussion on the position of journalists under the law of war. This section seeks to describe how the law of war rules are discussed in more detail in other sections of the manual, could apply to journalists, and emphasizes that, in general, 
journalists are civilians. The listening post. The manual uses the term underprivileged belligerents to refer to some journalists, and that means they should be treated as spies. What does this term mean? When has a journalist abandoned his or her work and become a so-called underprivileged belligerent? The U.S. Department of Defense. The manual does not say that journalists should be treated as spies or underprivileged belligerents. Rather, the manual notes the possibility that in some cases, journalists might abandon their civilian role to become spies or underprivileged belligerents. The term spies and underprivileged belligerents are terms of art under the law of war. Section 4.17 of the manual explains the legal concept of spies under the law of war and draws heavily from the rules under the Hague Convention. Section 4.3 of the manual explains the concept of underprivileged belligerents drawing from the U.S. Supreme Court's interpretation of the new law of war. If a journalist or other civilian joins a terrorist group and participates in fighting, that person could be an underprivileged belligerent. The listening post. The Pentagon's manual is premised on the idea that journalists could threaten national security in a war zone. But has there ever been an instance in which the military operation was actually jeopardized by a journalist on the ground? U.S. Department of Defense. We do not think that is a correct description of the premise of the manual. National security, of course, sometimes depends on keeping secrets. In a war zone, keeping certain military-sensitive information secret may be crucial to save lives. In DOD public affairs, professionals work with journalists to establish ground rules and to provide them access so they can conduct their open and independent reporting without jeopardizing the security of ongoing military operations. The listening post. What are the legal implications of these guidelines for those deemed to have crossed the line? When a journalist no longer has civilian protection, what kind of punishments could they face? U.S. Department of Defense. If a journalist or other person or other person becomes an underprivileged belligerent, there may be legal consequences, which would depend significantly on the specific context and facets. For example, if a journalist or any other person were shooting at U.S. defense forces, then the U.S. forces would be able to return fire in self-defense. International humanitarian law, which is the subject of the manual, permits states to punish enemy underprivileged belligerents subject to applicable requirements such as a fair trial, section 4.19.4 of the manual. However, what specific punishments would be applicable would depend on domestic law, which is not a focus of the manual, and in particular on the legal form in which charges were brought. The listening post. What is your response to criticism that this issuance will stunt the ability of report ability to report facts accurately on the ground and ultimately harm free speech? The U.S. Department of Defense. We strongly disagree with this criticism. The manual emphasizes that journalists are civilians and must not be attacked for engaging in journalism. Moreover, as noted above, this manual does not in any way affect existing DOD policies with respect to the media, which is to support open and independent reporting on U.S. military operations. The listening post. What is your response to the criticisms that the manual could be used as a document of impunity in situations of military malfeasance? U.S. Department of Defense. We strongly disagree with this criticism. 
very purpose of this manual is to address concerns raised by your question and help DOD personnel comply with the law of war. We urge viewers of your program to survey the whole manual, beginning with the forward, which emphasizes that the law of war is a fundamental importance of the armed forces of the United States. We think that a fair reading of the manual includes all of its sections and subsequently shows the department's serious commitment to ensuring that its operations adhere to the law. Listening post. The New York Times states that the standards set in the guidelines are, quote, reminiscent of the most authoritarian regimes. What do you make of this accusation? U.S. Department of Defense. We are concerned that they appear to be misrepresenting the text of the manual and misunderstanding the manual's purpose and scope. The listening post. Is this ultimately just a scare tactic to control media narratives and to rein in journalists who are out of step with the U.S. government foreign policies? U.S. Department of Defense. We absolutely disagree with this criticism. We would be very surprised if anyone could interpret the manual in this way, and we have not heard this criticism to date. <clears throat> For example, the manual explicitly notes that, quote, independent journalism or public advocacy, e.g. opinion journalists who write columns supporting or criticizing a state's war effort, is protected as a civilian activity under the law of war. In addition, the suggestion in your question is surprising because the manual is principally an internal document and a resource for the department's legal advisors with the primary purpose to help them ensure our military's adherence to international law. We have posted it publicly in the interests of transparency and because we believe it will be of interest to many, even though it is not directed at external audiences. I can't read any more of this. Yeah. Mm. It's it's an awful big document to basically say we don't really want to talk to journalists. Um, which is it basically is. what it's all about. Well, it's got it, nothing it's, to do with it, keeping secrets. It's the fact that, yeah, they just don't want anyone knowing what they're doing. Anywhere. Well, at any it, time. Of, of course. But, I mean, I think a fair point can be made that this is something that could strike fear in the heart of any journalist, really. Yeah. You know, because anything they do in war, it's like anything they test out in an isolated city. Um, they test things with populations that are not your own. Yeah. And then they bring those programs back and they test them on society's undesirables so that's going to be prisoners then they roll them out of prisons and onto the general public at large i think people don't see the steps in this stuff yeah and well, i find it the one that gets me from this document is it's like it, it, it conjures up the old idea of you know the the corrupt policeman who plants evidence on a suspect it's, so it's like you'll have a journalist and you'll have the military go oh we, we thought he had a gun and <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, exactly. so we arrested him so he, that meant he couldn't report and, and oh, but after investigation in it turns site. out he was fine <laughs> now he's reporting the dispatches from Guantanamo Bay yeah so, That's kind of yeah. what it smacks of. It does. It does. Yeah. I find it very uncomfortable. And 
Whereas, I yeah, I, fi- I find it quite different because the British military really doesn't seem to give a shit. As long <laughs> as the reporter doesn't start blurting out, you know, the day before a mission, that the mission's going ahead. They really yeah. couldn't care less what the journalists get up to. Because <laughs> they aren't allowed actually... <laughs> in any of the secret areas. Uh, and anything that's happening in warfare, well, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean... You know, there's bullets, bombs, and planes. That's uh, it. Well, that's pretty much it now. I mean, I guess you add some drones to it. Yeah. That's about it. Tanks, drones, and tanks. Um, It's funny, I was talking to somebody last night actually about uh, Project Mockingbird, Mm -hmm. which doesn't really exactly relate to this, but it's just funny that now the military. Is and is, I can't say that they're also getting in on this. I'm sure they've been in on this for a while, but that they're all kind of involved in the same thing now: suppressing other voices, yeah. suppressing honest journalism, shutting people up, making sure that the only voice you hear is essentially the same voice that's on, like Voice of America or E Entertainment Television. So you never get any intelligent. Well, news. they'll they'll deny it, but I know that during some of the stuff in Afghanistan, BBC journalists could quite happily go about with the British troops, but when they try to do the same with the American troops, it's like, no. Yeah. No, you you, you can't come anywhere near us. <laughs> yeah. I just, I have a real problem They're doing the same us. shit. That's what gets me. Uh, People I know, know what the military it, does in warfare, so, you know. It... I mean, you know, they want you to see sanitized stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, and I mean, that started, I think, basically because of a backlash to the coverage of the Vietnam War. Yeah. Where that was pretty graphic stuff. I mean, for war coverage, I don't think the country had ever really seen anything like that. You saw photographs from Time Magazine, of course, but up until that point, you hadn't really seen it in your living rooms or seen it right before you were going to have dinner. Yeah. And I think the reaction was so unsettling. Um, and it was so visceral. It, it started anti-war protests and the like. And I think the government just doesn't want to deal with that. They think, you know, they've got enough on their plate and you should just worry about, you know, whether Kanye West is going to run for president or not. That's all you should care about. That, that probably is a bigger worry, to be fair. Uh, oh, probably. <laughs> but it's um, it's it's more than a little disturbing to me. I am completely yeah, against this. Basically, the, the American military want to be able to do war behind closed doors. Uh, well, they want to do everything get behind to, closed but... doors, and that's the problem. And that's that's why you were supposed to have a fourth estate in this country. Yeah. And the fourth estate, if that underprivileged, belligerent title didn't already tell you. The fourth estate is essentially, for all purposes, dead in this country now. Yeah, There is oh, well, no that, dissenting that, that, opinion. That's the other thing that's prompted this, was the uh, war atrocities committed by soldiers. Yeah. They, they no. really didn't like it when the media was showing that stuff. But tough yeah, luck. But you, you dehumanized your soldiers, put them into horrific sin- situations... Guess what? They did horrific stuff. That's what humans do. You you can't. You can't just ignore it. 
Well, you can't just change how a person's brain functions either. And that's essentially what the military does with their training is they beat you down and build you up into something else. And some people don't have, I don't want to say the ability because that's not really true. Uh, A lot of these kids that are going over and over and over and over again are doing 20, 30 tours where that never happened before. You know, uh, my father did three, four at most. You well, know, apart, and he retired from, from the military. So there's a Scottish unit, uh, one of the units over here, that is basically in continuous active deployment for two years. And the longest crazy. break they had in two years was like a week here and there. Yeah, and and, and you're like, yeah, those guys are going to be a bit messed up in the head. <laughs> I mean, and that's the problem. That's that is essentially the problem. If you don't have a break to get back to some normalcy, to some real life, that's all you're going to know. Because that that's the problem the UK has now. They've cut the military back so far. But yeah, yeah we have, we have units that are staying in the field for far longer than they're supposed to. Um, yeah, a human being can only yeah. be exposed to certain things for so long before it really changes them. Um, and that's a problem. That's a big problem. That's that's our problem. It's it's a bad on us. Yeah, uh, it's a bad on the military industrial complex, um, and it's a bad on the government. And they know it. And uh, I agree with you. They really don't want to get called on it. And I feel, I feel so bad because you should have a bit of normalcy in there. Never mind, John. The, like, the, the robots hmm? will be coming along to do it all soon. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's all bread and circuses right now anyway. Yeah. So, um, I guess, let me see if I can find something a little less cheery than that. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, this is kind of good news. FTC commissioner says the public needs strong encryption, not backdoors. It would appear the FTC is quickly emerging as the counterforce to the FBI slash NSA's push to backdoor encryption. We recently wrote about how the FTC's CTO, Akasham Salanti, put up a blog post extolling the virtues of full disk encryption for devices, noting that it can help prevent or solve crimes, contrary to the scare stories you hear from the FBI and other law enforcement officials. And now, pretty quickly after that, FTC Commissioner Terry McSweeney has written a post for the Huffington Post arguing in favor of strong encryption as well. After discussing the range of threats as well as the rise in personal data being collected by services, she notes that strong encryption is now being used to better protect consumers. Encouragingly, many companies are taking meaningful steps to improve their security practices, including greater use of encryption technology for data in transit and at rest, whether it be stored in the cloud or on devices. Encryption has helped protect the information of millions of consumers. For example, protecting credit card information when a merchant is breached or protecting passwords when a popular website is hacked. The the impact of major breaches may also be reduced the more that users' data and communications are encrypted end-to-end. 
Moreover, there are products on the market providing consumers with better security and privacy tools, including encryption on the default for information stored on smartphones, apps that use end-to-end encryption, and services that encrypt data on devices, then back them up in the cloud. Competition in the marketplace of security and privacy technology holds considerable promise for consumers. She also discussed how any attempt to backdoor encryption could create serious harm for the future innovation and for our economy. This debate, sometimes called the crypto wars, is hardly new. It has been going on in some form for another for decades. But what is changing is the extent to which we are using connected technology in every facet of our daily life. If consumers cannot trust the security of their devices, we could end up stymieing innovation and introducing needless risks into our personal security. In this environment, policymakers should carefully weigh the potential impacts of any proposals that may weaken privacy and security protection for consumers. It's great to see the FTC coming out so publicly on this issue. I hope that others in other parts of the government will do the same as well. Unfortunately, thanks to the overly vocal FBI and NSA, many believe the entire federal government believes that we should backdoor encryption, and that sets up a very unfortunate us-versus-them attitude between technologists and the government. Instead, it's clear that many, many people in government support strong encryption and are against the use of backdoors. It's good to see more of them speaking up and making their voices heard. Sorry, that was that was my bad. Um, I just finished chugging a Red Bull. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the encryption thing. One that surprised me that they haven't been complaining about it more. Uh, the FBI and NSA. Uh, solid state drives. Well, um, I mean, but... Because they're basically encrypted as standard. I'm surprised mm-hmm. the NSA and FBI haven't complained more about them. Because they're well, getting really popular but, really I mean, quick. You saw the the photos from, like, we have a listener who's German, okay? And, and, you know, the Germans are actually pretty big on privacy and stuff. And he was showing some of the photos that Jacob Applebaum was showing um, from the Snowden data dumps. Yeah. Not dumps, but, you know, just stuff that Snowden had shared with... um, journalists and one of the things was it was photographs and i don't know how true this is because i I find myself questioning exactly how much of the stuff snowden showed us is true i believe a lot of it is i just wonder if some of it is puffed up to make the nsa look bigger and better than it is although i don't i don't know the fluff work yeah Right, but there were actually photos of them ripping apart SSD drives before they were being sent on to the consumers who ordered them and inserting software or chips in there. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's worrying that they're not complaining more. Well, they're not complaining because if those photos are right, they've already got everything. Yeah. That's scary. Yes. And it's scary that they would stoop to such depths to do it. Most of us, I think, are of the mind that my privacy is my privacy, but if there's a genuine threat, all you have to do is ask me and I will share what you need to know with you. And it's a shame the government doesn't grasp that. They think well, they need to use stealth well, it's, to do this. It's a problem with all these secret, well, spy agencies, shall we say. <laughs> the, their whole premise is secrecy and mistrust. 
Therefore, they they can't trust anyone. Um, right, God, but, they don't even trust their own members most of the time. Right, but most of us, okay, most people I know, when you get them apart from the government or any group of people they deal with, most people have peaceful, normal dealings with people in society. And if someone asked them because they thought there was great danger, could they have access to this data or that data, they really wouldn't have a problem with that because people are reasonable. Yes. People as individuals are reasonable. People in large groups that you're attacking, take it fucking personal. But as I say, it's when you're in this little little closet off on your own and everybody's always on about trust and secrecy that yeah your perception gets skewed so literally you can't trust (laughs) it's 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 it is basically paranoia i would be a horrible federal agent (laughs) i think we all know that but yeah i don't think i could do this stuff i would just feel too disgusting about it as I said, you know, a lot of them, they must literally be second and third guessing everything they do all the time. <laughs> I don't know anybody who'd want to live like that. I don't care how good money is. Yeah. <laughs> well, you saw how you saw how nervous Snowden was. Yeah, well, I don't I mean, blame him. That, that's what most of them will be like. You know, <laughs> like, I mean, it was, I've got to admit... somebody watching. Ah. I mean, it was really... The movie Laura Poitras made, Citizen Four, it was really heartbreaking to watch a, a portion of it where here's this kid sitting in his motel room. Motel room. Nice hotel. Yeah. Looks like he hasn't seen the sun in about a fucking year. Right? And he goes to type a message and he pulls the blankets over his head because he doesn't know if there's cameras overhead. Yeah. That kind of paranoia has got to be crippling. Yes. That's what I so, mean. I mean... They, they they have no perspective um, anymore. Yeah. It goes out the window. They, they only know the the secrecy and lies. <laughs> what a way to live. Yeah. That, well, that, that's why it's a rough game, the old spy world. Yeah. Everybody go know. and watch Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the, the film version. Very good film. Yeah. yeah. That kind of good... sums it up quite nicely, that film. You know, who do we trust? Yeah. It's a shame. Yeah. No one should have to live like that. And we shouldn't have to live like that. The, the people who work for these agencies, I don't care that they work for the government. They deserve to have better in their lives and we deserve to have better in ours. We all deserve yeah. better. This is ridiculous. It has to stop. Uh, I don't know when it will, but, you know, I'm I'm taking a stand, so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> damn it. All right. I guess that's it for this evening. Okay. Advert. Advert. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. AmmoSeek.com. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next Monday.